All right. Well, I am really excited uh, for today's sermon. In fact, I hardly slept last night um, because all I kept thinking over and over again was these stories were just all going through my mind all night long. Um, <clears throat> so for those of you guys who don't personally know me or like on a more personal level, so my family is just kind of in this period right now where we're just doing a lot of sitting and waiting. Um, have any of you guys ever been there before? where you're like, okay, I could really use some direction now because this can't stay this way. Um, <clears throat> so that's really kind of where my family has been for the last couple of months. And we're doing well. Everything is okay. It's just one of those where we're really ready to get our directions and know where we're going to go from here. Um, so we're currently in a series called The Pillars of Faith. Um, this is a really exciting series to talk about, especially today. We are going to hear a lot of familiar names, maybe some you didn't know, um, and we're just going to recount these amazing stories and these times when God really showed up for people and he followed through on his promises. So I'm going to actually be preaching out of the book of Hebrews today. Um, and I don't know how much you guys know about Hebrews, but this is one of those books where it almost didn't make it into the New Testament. And I know Pastor JJ touched on this a little bit last week, um, but just for those of you maybe who weren't here, the authorship is unknown, which is why it almost didn't make it into the New Testament, because it was a big deal that they could validate it, that they could find out who the author was before it made it in. Um, that said, you can read through the book of Hebrews and you get a really good idea of what the point was, possibly who the audience was. So more than likely, this is a group of people that is in Italy, that they are Jewish, but they are also Christian. So they are, they believe in Jesus, but they are Jews by descent. Um, and Again, that's one of those where you read it and you can, get, you can just get an idea of who the audience is. Um, it's thought that possibly one of the reasons that the author of Hebrews wrote this was as encouragement or possibly they were worried that this audience, that they were away from them for whatever reason and that they might be falling away from their faith in Jesus. So they're writing this letter as a way to encourage these believers to stay in the faith. Um, the other thing that this author does a great job of doing is really reconciling because if this audience is in Italy, it's thought they were possibly in Rome, not the church in Rome that Paul necessarily talks to, but it could be a smaller one, um, but that they're, they are very immersed in their Greek culture as well. And why this matters is because in the Greek, the Greeks had this thing where they were constantly believing that there was another world outside of this world, that this world was merely a copy of a better world somewhere else. So this writer of Hebrews, as you go through and you read these different themes, they're explaining very well about how this man, Jesus, who was 100% God, 100% man, when he came down, he fulfilled that longing for that real thing that they were looking for. He, they also were, did a great job of reminding these Jews that they, they went back and recounted the times and all the things that they used to have to do, the, the sacrifices they would have to make for their atonement, and to remind them that Jesus was the sacrifice they were waiting for so that they could stop this cycle of repenting all the time, no longer be, you know, they couldn't access God because the Jews believed that God was too holy. They couldn't go near him. Well, Jesus bridged that gap. 
So the writer of Hebrews does a really fantastic job of just really reconciling those two groups of people back to Jesus. So we're going to start off in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We're going to take this kind of slow because we're going to, I want to just touch on these different stories. And you'll notice that the author of Hebrews jumps a lot from person to person to person to person, kind of almost like a, you know, rapid fire kind of emotion. Um, and I don't want to skip over any of it because it's really important. So we start in 23, and it talks about, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were, they were not afraid of the king's edict. So I'm going to jump over now to Exodus 1, 15 through 22. You guys are welcome to come with me. But I want to just read what exactly was going on in this time. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and this is because Israel was growing too big. The people of Israel were growing way too big. Then the, the ruler of Egypt became really worried that they were going to be able to overpower them. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, those whose name were Sherpa and Pua, whom you are helping the Hebrew, when you are helping the he Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you not done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. I'm going to now move on to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because this is where we're going to learn about the, the birth of Moses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she couldn't hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it in the reeds among put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She, drew, she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Moses' parents' faith, I don't want to let this just go by without honestly mentioning this because they were told every male was going to have to be killed. But they had faith because there had been a vision just before this of Moses being the great one that was going to lead them out of Egypt. 
And so they had this faith that they were going to trust God. And before this also, uh, Moses' father had sent his mother away so that there was no possible way she, become, she could become pregnant with a child. But he had her come back. They intentionally got pregnant during this time, which was crazy. And then they bore this son, Moses, who was going to end up delivering them from the Egyptians. So we move on to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. So in Exodus chapter 2, a little bit later, actually just right after the account of Moses' birth, there was a time where he saw an Egyptian who was beating up a Hebrew person. So he goes and he actually kills this man. Well, word of this killing actually got around. And so he decided he needed to flee Egypt. So he went to Meridian. And the reason that this is important in the book of Hebrews, where, he ta- where it talks about that he went by faith, it was not because he was afraid of Pharaoh. It was because he understood the time had not come. And it actually took a lot of courage and patience to go away and wait until the proper time for him to come and reclaim God's people. So then we move ahead to verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 14. If you guys want to, again, turn and join me on that one. This one is phenomenal. I don't know if you guys have heard this story and what happened here, but it is really incredible. So it starts off, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back in a camp near Pi-Hiroth, near Migdal, and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in the desert, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh, and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about, about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he, let his chariot, so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh of Pharaoh king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea, near Pirharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because you were... Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Uh, How's that for some complaining, right? Or a lack of trust, rather, in their leader. But really, were there no graves to die in Egypt? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians will see you today. You will never the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? The Israelite tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As if moving water wasn't impressive enough, but the water but the ground underneath to be dry. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain the glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of the Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so that neither were in the light or day all day long. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing forward, or fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And that leads us to verses 29 and 30 back in Hebrews, where it talks about, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. So this is a really fun story. And then in verse 31, the faith, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So God had promised the Israelites Jericho. But Jericho was a fortified city. They had a great wall. They had an army. They were set. There was no way these Israelites were going to ever be able to just come in and take the place. Well, they ended up sending in a few spies, and this woman, Rahab, who was a prostitute, takes them in, and she offers them a place to stay in order to stay safe. When word is, when it's found out that these spies had entered, they sent to Rahab, and they said, hey, these guys that were here were Israelites. She lied to them and told them that, she, that they left. She didn't know who they were and didn't know where they went, but really they were actually hiding on her roof. Then what happens... Um, we're going to go back over to Joshua 
chapter 6, verses 1 through 20, and we're going to hear about how they were able to claim Jericho. The one thing I want to say is that while we're flipping through and we're reading these stories, it's because it's a really good reminder of exactly what happened. Sometimes we know the story, but maybe we missed a little something. But the other thing is, too, the letter that this, that this audience was receiving, these were people who had studied the scriptures forward and backward. They knew every single story. So every key name that this, that this writer, woman, man, whoever it was, whatever they were writing, they knew the stories in their heart because they'd been taught since they were very, very young. So we're in verse chapter 6 in Joshua. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to, Jericho, to Joshua, See that I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the, with all the army men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Can you guys imagine being the people that Joshua is about to give these orders to? We're supposed to do what? Just walk around and then blow a horn and the walls are supposed to fall down? So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Have the seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army to advance. March around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will be able to make, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go to his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys.
In verse 32, it says, And what more should I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. So the first person that they're mentioned here is Gideon. So here's the quick story of Gideon. This happens over a couple of chapters in the book of Judges, if you guys want to read it. So the Amidianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples, they were numbering over 100,000. They joined forces, and with only 300 men, Gideon won a victory over them in the days when they had terrorized Israel, just by surrounding their camp and making noise. They all took off. This was a victory that definitely went down in history. Can you guys imagine, like, just picture that in your mind for a minute. 100,000 men versus 300 men, and they all ran off. Then it goes on to talk about Barak, and this, this is covered in Judges 4 and 5. So under the inspiration of the prophetess Deborah, Barak assembled 10,000 young men and faced the fearful odds of the Canaanites with their 900 chariots of iron to win an almost incredible victory. It was as if a band of almost completely unarmed people came in and took over 900 tanks. That's what that would look like. So then it goes on to talk about Samson, which you read about in Judges 13 through 16. Samson, with his strength again and again, faced the most amazing odds and emerged triumphant. He was the instrument of punishment against the Philistines, and most of the time he did this single-handedly. Then we go into Jephthah in Judges 11 and 12. He was an illegitimate son, driven into a kind of exile, into a life, and into a life of an outlaw. But when the Ammonites were putting Israel into fear, the forgotten outlaw was called back, and he won a tremendous victory, even though his devotion to God cost him the life of his daughter. They go on to mention David, a shepherd boy, a nobody in the line of his brothers that stood up there, then, and David was chosen to be the anointed king of all the choices. They go on to mention Samuel, born to his mother late in life, again and again moving alone as the only strong and faithful man of God against easily frightened, disconnected, and rebellious people. Then it goes on to mention prophets who through the faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Man after man, bearing a faithful and isolated witness to God. The whole list of men who faced incredible odds for God. It goes on to mention the prophet who shut the mouths of lions. So we read in Daniel chapter 6, this amazing story of Daniel, who is tricked by these other guys. So Daniel is appointed to a leadership position by Darius. And these guys go, and they try to trick Darius, and they say, because they don't like Daniel, they don't like the position he's in, they're jealous of him, and they want to be in his position. So they go to Darius, and they say, hey, Darius, can you decree that anyone who doesn't worship you uh, will be sent into a den of lions? So Darius goes ahead and does this, not thinking about the fact that Daniel worships the Lord. Um, So then it moves on, and Daniel is caught praying. So these guys go back to Darius, and they turn him in, and they say, we found Daniel praying to the God, to the one Lord, instead of praying to you. Didn't you decree that he has to be sent into the den of lions? 
And on top of that, didn't you decree that I can't, that you can't go back later and change your word? You have to keep your word and you have to do what you said no matter who it is. What we need to understand is that Darius actually was very fond of Daniel and he did not want to send Daniel into the den of lions, but because he had decreed it, because he was bound by the law to do so. So he sends Daniel in there into the den of lions and the whole night he's sleepless. He can't sleep. He's tossing and turning, worried about Daniel. He goes the next morning and he's basically praying. He gets to there and he's shouting, Daniel, are you still alive? Next thing you know, Daniel answers back with a pizza. Um, <laughs> I figured there'd be at least one. That's the veg. I knew he was waiting for the veggie tail references. But uh, the, the lions weren't hungry because they were fed pizza by the angels. Um, but no, he was untouched. There wasn't a wound on him. Nothing was wrong. It goes on to talk about those who escaped the, uh, who quenched the fury of the flames. This is the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we find in Daniel chapter 3. And I'm going to actually go ahead and read that one. If you guys want to turn with me again, that's Daniel chapter 3. This is in the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, or King Nezer, right? Isn't that what they call him? JJ? All right, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and, 60, and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the, then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not bow down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and King Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. 
then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's reply. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Here's the catch. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men were wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and, others, and other clothes were bound up and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the, fur that the furnace... And the furnace so hot that the flames killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even a smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defiled the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Then when it talks about in verse 33, the edge of the sword that, that the prophets had escaped, this was referencing to the... Um, to when Elijah escaped threatened assassination in 1 Kings and also Elisha in 2 Kings, whose weaknesses were turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed against for, and routed for me, foreign armies. This would have been many stories in their minds because as you go through and you read these stories of God over and over and over again, they all have the same thing in common. People of faith doing ridiculous things with ridiculous outcomes. In verses 35 through 38, it says, Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. So most likely, it's believed that these events that they're talking about, specifically through verses 35 through 38, 
happened in the Apocrypha days. So if there's, there's a book that happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that accounts for a lot of the happenings before Jesus came. So it's believed that it's also possibly referring to the struggles in this time. It's believed that these people, that this audience was written to, happened in between the persecution of Nero and the persecution of Domitian. And that they probably had loved ones who were persecuted at the hands of these rulers and possibly were aware of the fact that it was likely their persecution could happen as well. So then we go on and we read verses 39 through 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are... Sur- nope, not there yet. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together would, this, would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here this author is making this great statement. They're reminding the audience of all these people that had gone on before them. And, the final, and that they were unable to see the final unfolding of God's promise of the coming Messiah into the world. And it was as if God had so arranged these things that the full blaze of his glory should not be revealed until they could enjoy it together. The, it's like the Hebrew, the writer was saying, see the glory of God has come, but see what it cost to enable it to come. This is the faith which gave you your religion. Don't you want to be a part of a true heritage like that? And the thing that I love the most when we're going through these stories, the things that I didn't mention before, is that there were many of these people didn't start off having faith. They started off questioning. They started off saying, I don't believe you, that you're really going to do this. But the bottom line was that they did it anyways. And ultimately, the thing we need to remember is that these are God's stories lived out in the lives of his people. These are stories not about the heroes. And I hope that we don't get hung up necessarily on the people that did these things, but what, that we remember all the ways that God has always provided. The reason why it is so important to go in and talk about these stories and read these stories is because Say 50 years prior to this, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and they go off on this little tangent thing where Jesus says to them, now wait a second, you guys are missing the whole thing. And he kind of, he kind of blasts them in, in, in the gospel reading for today, and this is, they, they kind of go together way too well that we had to go ahead and cover both of them. But the gospel reading is in John, 54, John 12, 54. He said, he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And in the south, the wind blows, and you say, oh, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. Know how to, you, you know how to interpret the, interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? He's, he's basically saying this. Moses had faith because of an intimate relationship with God. Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't even know me. You, you don't even know what we're doing because you're only looking through your eyes of uh, what you see. You, you have no idea what's going on. 
Jericho was taken by a group of people that in spite of knowing what they could not do, they knew what God could do. And so God is saying, you don't even trust me. You, you look at the weather and you know what's going to happen. When the clouds are there, you know it's going to rain. But, but other than that, you don't see past anything that's right here and right now. And then he, and then he brings, and then he, and then he says that all of this stuff is going on, and you have no idea what's coming up. You, you can't see anything that's going on. Rahab had a faith that said in the midst of all the facts, she was going to go with faith. And Jesus says, all you're doing is trusting facts. You're walking around on earth trusting facts. Here's where we drop the ball. So many of us need to see things. We need the facts. We need the results. We need to know what's coming. We have the hardest time looking and going, I'm just going to trust. The, the reason why these stories are important is not the, the people in the Hebrew audience, the Romans didn't just know these stories, but so did the people Jesus was talking to. Mm. And if they had to be reminded, so do they in Hebrews, so do we today. We have to be reminded of what happened. What, how in the world did any of these people step up and do these things? Because they knew the stories of their people. There's a reason why almost every single story that Jess read is a veggie tale. And no matter how much she read them, all I could see was French peas throwing slushies. But there's a reason why we hear all these stories in, in Sunday school. These are foundational to who we are. And Jesus says, without these stories, you get caught up in looking at the weather and interpreting what's going on right now and right here, and you miss everything else that's happening. We need to be people of everything else. We need to drop the common sense and start believing in uncommon sense. And be able to see past what you see right here. Be able to see past the mountains. Be able to see past what's going on. Be able to look at these people and go, I want to live that way. These pillars aren't just pillars because we thought they were cool stories. They are the ones that found foundation of who we are. We're going to go into connecting time, and I want that to be kind of a challenge for us today. As the band comes back up, if, if Ben is still here, you might have left. Uh, <laughs> as we move into connecting time, I want that to be your challenge today. To be able to embrace these stories as not just things that, 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 that we've heard before, and, and, has, and has just read them, and you're like, oh, I've heard this story before. Oh, I know this story. I know this story. Well, some of us don't know these stories. It's the first time we've heard them. Some of us have to be reminded of these stories because it's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, you hypocrites can see what you see, and you're so confident about that, but there's so much more you're missing because you're only focused on what you can see and not what's out there, not what you're reaching for, not what you're going for. So as you mingle around for connecting time, whether you're lighting a candle in the back um, just, to, just for your own... Uh, your own declaration of light penetrating darkness, your own your own style of prayer. Use it for that. Use it for an opportunity to